Thank you for staying with us. We are into part B of the Parashah Shmot, and this is a study on the um, the names of God as rendered in this first parasha in the book of Exodus. And up to this point, we've talked about um, the Hebrew word olam and its alternate spelling le'olam. We've talked about the vav and the way that it... Um, Sometimes it plays a consonant, and sometimes it plays a vowel sound. And so, what we're doing is we're looking at Genesis. I'm sorry, we're looking at Exodus chapter three, and verse thirteen through fifteen, where God tells Abraham. I'm sorry, God tells Moshe. I'm really with it, aren't I? I'm sorry. God tells Moshe that uh, he his he will be forever remembered as the God who will deliver them, and he gives him his uh, uh, his the moniker or appellation. Um, and we're discussing the possibilities of what means. At this point in time, it becomes necessary in part two of this uh, to pull quotes from the Chazal, that is to say the sages of blessed memory, because they have something to say about the rendering here. Now what I'm about to quote for you are um, lengthy quotes from the Talmud, uh, as well as the Jewish Encyclopedia and some other sources here, in an effort to give you differing opinions on what's taking place in the Hebrew. And then after reading their quotes, I'm going to give you my opinion of the Hebrew itself. All right? So, here now I shall begin with the Talmud, the great compendium of Jewish and rabbinic thought. Quote, Said Rabbah Bar Hana and said uh, Rabbi Yochanan, the correct pronunciation of the, divine, of the divine name made up of the four letters, sages, uh, hand on to their sons and disciples, the identity of that family, that is, repeating the information once every seven years. Others say twice every seven years. Said Rabbi Nachman Bar Itzach, it stands to reason that the rule is in accord with him who said once every seven years, for it has been written, This is my name forever, but the word is so written that it can be read to conceal. Rabbah considered giving a lecture on that in the public session. Said to him, a certain said, quote, The word is so written that it can be read to conceal. Verse 18a, uh, Rabbi Abina contrasted verses, quote, This is my name as against this is my memorial. The references to Exodus 3.15, right here in the Talmud. Said the Holy One, blessed be he, quote, It is not in the way that I am written that I am to be read. My name is written with a YH, but is read with AD. Uh, and in brackets we have YHWH as against uh, Adonai, end quote. Now that's the quote from the Talmud. What typically ends up happening in the Talmud is one rabbi will quote another rabbi, or one rabbi will speak in the name of another rabbi. Like, for instance, it might say, like if I were in the Talmud and I was quoting uh, Rabbi Ishmael, it might say, Rabbi Ariel said in the name of Rabbi Ishmael. So that it shows that the authority is really not mine, but rather the whatever rabbi I'm quoting from. That's why it says that uh, Rabbi Yochanan said that Rabbi, said that the Rabbi uh, Barchanan said. At any rate, they uh, make this discussion about the way God's name is pronounced. And I don't want to give my comments on it just yet. At first, I want to read some more uh, quotes. This next quote is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, and it's actually referencing the very Talmudic quote that I just provided. For those of you who want to know which um, version of the Talmud I quoted, 
That note, the footnote there, reads, The Babylonian Talmud, translation and commentary by Jacob Neusner, Sansino CD-ROM edition. The tractate was from Kiddushin, the folio was 71A, and Hendrickson Publishers did that in 2006. That's where I pulled that quote from. This next quote is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, uh, 1905, volume 9, under Names of God, page 162. Here's the quote. Quote, even though the scripture is quite clear on the use of the name yod vav the rabbis developed teachings to justify their practice of substitution and non-use, one of which is based on the verse in Shemot, Exodus 3.15. And then they give you the quote. Here's the quote. And yod vav said further to Moshe, Now you are to say to the sons of Yisrael, yod vav Elohei of your fathers, Elohei of... Abraham, Elohei of Yitzhak, and Elohei of Jacob sent me to you. This is my name forever in this memorial for generation to generation. Now, the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to tell us, now the word used for forever is the letters L-O-L-M, or rendered Le'olam, Lamed Ain Lamed Meim. According to the rabbis, the Jewish Encyclopedia tells me, according to the rabbis, this rendering means to conceal. The sage is quoted, This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Exodus 3.15 Here the word le'olam, forever, is written defectively, being without the vav, for the vowel o, which renders the reading le'alem. And they show here that it says to conceal. And then the Jewish Encyclopedia gives you a reference to that same tractate that I just mentioned, Kiddushin 71a. So, that's the end of the quote from the Jewish Encyclopedia. So, so far we've got consistency among the rabbinic authorities uh, that the name should not be pronounced that is spelled. Let's keep going and see if we can find some further support. The uh, Ankalas Pentateuch, with Rashi's commentary, which anyone can buy at your standard um, Judaica bookstore, it's typically blue, it's, it's almost as tall as it is wide, and it contains the... Uh, Torah portions as well as the Haftar portions, and in the margins of the uh, of, of that Bible itself, it's got the um, the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation from the Hebrew, rendered right there, and it's uh, Targum Ankalos. At any rate, let me make a quote from there. All right, this uh, this quote is from the um, the Benai Berit Jewish Heritage Classics Ankalos Pentateuch with Rashi's commentary, and I'm reading from page 89. Quote: The Hebrew word Leolam forever is spelled defectively without the letter Vav, so that it may be read La'alem, which means to conceal, viz. to conceal it, that the name of God shall not be read exactly as it is written. End quote. Now that's interesting, because that's bold. That just tells me right away that I'm not supposed to say the tetragrammaton name of God. And the reason is, is because the uh, rendering in the Hebrew has been altered. Let me pull one more quote, this time from Klein's Dictionary of the Hebrew Language. Um, this is, let's see, where did I get this from? This is a comprehensive etymological dictionary of the Hebrew language uh, from Ernest Klein, page 466. Quote, um, actually let me back up. Klein's Dictionary of the Hebrew Language is clarifying our Hebrew word olam. Okay, Commenting on the word olam. Klein says, quote, Olam in the Hebrew means one, long duration, I'm sorry, long duration antiquity. 
Number two, it means continuous existence, eternity, uninterrupted future. Number three, it means world. Number four, rendered from post-biblical Hebrew, it means mankind or humanity. Um, Number five, it means, from the post-biblical Hebrew, it means pleasures of life. Number six, from the Mishnaic Hebrew, it means community. And it says that uh, related to biblical Aramaic and Aramaic, uh, Amli, uh, Alam, Syriac, Amli means eternity, world, whence probably Ethiopic, Alam, eternity, and world. Then uh, he also goes on to show me that the Arabic Alam means world. And according to some scholars, these words literally mean the hidden, unknown time and derived from the base alem, to hide. According to several other scholars, the above words are related to Akkadian ulu, ulanu, which means remote time, so that ein in mule, and that's my rendering of Akkadian, by the way, ein in mule, etc., would be a suffix of those other words, ulu and ulanu, end quote. All right, so that's Klein's dictionary speaking about the word olam. Now, he um, also comments, as I read further down in this dictionary, about the word alem. And concerning this word, he states, quote, El- alem means one, to hide, conceal, a base with no equivalence in other Semitic languages. And the Masoretics, the Masoretic, um, I'm sorry, Mas- not Masoretic, but the uh, Mishnahic Hebrew uh, means to, means was hidden, in quote. So, Gosh, at this point in time, you're probably scratching your head. You're lost. You're thinking, Ariel, what the heck does this all mean? Well, unfortunately, the context of the Talmudic discussions with their support from the Jewish Encyclopedia and Rashi above, the context itself is too broad for me to develop here in our commentary. However, the gist of the immediate quotes can be summarized thusly. All right, Taking all those quotes, let me just summarize as I understand it. The rabbis would seem to have us to believe that this word olam can be pronounced alem. The three letters ayin, lamed, meim can be pronounced alem, owing to the fact that originally the Hebrew scrolls contained no vowel markings, which is true. Um, and if they had no vowel markings, they would we wouldn't know how the correct pronunciation was. We'd have to rate. We would have to rely on the Masoretic tr- uh, tradition. Now, admittedly, if you look at on, especially on my written uh, commentary, if you look at the word olam and alem, they look identical when rendered from the Hebrew without vowel markings. When we at least the root words, the ayin lamed meim is the same on both of them. This subsequent rendering of the letters ayin lamed meim, according to the sages, means secret or unspoken. So they don't render it olam; they render it alem, and alem for them means secret or unspoken. Hence. The traditional understanding from the rabbis is that Hashem is instructing Moshe to teach the children of Israel that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov is Yehovah, and that we are not to mention His name aloud. Moreover, this quote silence end quote is to be remembered forever. That's how they're rendering the verse. At least as I understand their commentaries there. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not suggesting that we lose all reverence for the holy name of yod supposedly pronounced Yahweh, and other times supposedly pronounced Jehovah. In actuality, neither one of these pronunciations may be etymologically correct. 
to be sure, I, Ariel, Ben Lyman, I personally advocate serious respect for the holy name of our holy God. So, allow me to pull one final quote from a well-known rabbinic translation of the scriptures, the Art Scroll series, Stone Edition, Tanakh. In the introduction to the translation, here's what we read. Quote, The four-letter name of Hashem, yod Hey wav Hey, they render it Y-H-W-H, um, indicates that God is timeless and infinite, for the letters of His name are those of the words Hayah Hoveh, which is Hebrew for He was, He is, and He will be. They go on to say, This name sometimes appears with the vowel points Yehovah and sometimes without. In either case, this name is never pronounced as it is spelled. During the prayer, or when a blessing is recited, or when a Torah verse is read, the four-letter name should be pronounced as if it were spelled Adonai. That's A-D-O-N-A-I. The name identifies God as the master of all, which Adon means Lord or Master. At other times it should be pronounced, uh, the Stone Edition goes on to say, at other times it should be pronounced Hashem, literally, the name. The four-letter name of God is translated Hashem, the pronunciation traditionally used for the name to avoid pronouncing it unnecessarily. Sometimes the name appears with the vowelization Yehovi. This version is pronounced as if it were spelled Elohim, the name that refers to God as the one who is all-powerful. And last, they go on to say, when it appears with the prefix Lehovi, it is pronounced Lalohim. This is translated as Hashem Elohim to indicate that it refers to the aspects inherent in each of those names. End quote. Now I pulled that from the Stone Edition Tanakh, uh, the Art Scroll series of their uh, publications. This one was published by Masora Publications Limited. All right. You listening to my podcast are probably wondering, well, Ariel, what's your preference? You you seem to be familiar enough with the Hebrew to navigate through it. Me, I, I, I don't know Hebrew, you might be saying. I don't know enough Hebrew to know how I should say the name of God correctly and how I shouldn't it. In other words, some of you are probably going to write into me and ask me what should be perhaps the correct way we should say it. You're asking me to make halakha, which I'm not going to make, but I can make some suggestions, okay? How am I personally affected by what I just quoted? Well, for starters, and perhaps you can follow in my footsteps, perhaps you don't have to. But for starters, when I'm with Jewish folks under the persuasion that the four-letter name should never be pronounced, then I do not pronounce it in their presence. It's just that simple. It's a matter of sensitivity. If they don't want to hear it pronounced, then I won't pronounce it, even if I think that it should be. What I'm also saying, however, is that because of the above assumptions on the part of our ancients, we may, we, we just may, have temporarily lost the correct original pronunciation of these four letters. I don't know exactly how yod heh is supposed to be pronounced. Some in the emerging Torah communities today feel that unless we somehow recapture the original rendering of these four letters, that we are in error in addressing our God as Lord. I know people who say that we cannot use the the circumlocutions of Lord and Adonai and Hashem and things like that, that we must use some rendering of yod heh These are true name advocates, and I'm not one of them. I do believe that this is an unnecessary distraction if we force people to render it in the way that we understand it. 
In reality, we may just have to wait until Messiah returns to Earth to teach us the correct way to say it. You know what I mean? I don't think we should get hung up over the correct way to say it, and we should not get hung up over people who use circumlocutions. Either ditch is a ditch I want to avoid. However, in the meantime, I do believe that we do have something just as powerful and acceptable to yod heh vav as was originally rendered, even if it's been lost. Let's just say that the pronunciation has been lost and we don't know what it is. I believe that God has given us a name that we can speak with authority and with assurance. Allow me to elaborate. This next section is entitled, Shem Mashiach, the name of the Messiah. Now what I'm about to suggest runs counter to the above argument offered by most rabbis today. In other words, the rabbis of antiquity would say, No, Ariel, you cannot identify with God through the Messiah's name. But I tend to disagree. I offer my interpretation as someone that has been renewed within my mind by the effectual work of the Messiah Yeshua himself and has therefore, um, has, has therefore liked to believe that he has discovered <laughs> the name that is above all names. In other words, I, I don't know what the name of God is, yod I don't know how that's pronounced. But I do know the name above all names. I believe that according to a literal understanding of the verse that we were just reading, Hashem was instructing Moshe to teach the children of Israel to forever remember that yod heh the God of their fathers, not only is, or I am, but that he will be the God who delivers them from the bondage of sin characterized by Egypt. Now the emphasis is on the delivering. And that forever they, the sons of Israel, were to remember that there is no other God besides yod heh Now that, I, I suppose the rabbis would agree. So in remembering, as opposed to shrouding it in obscurity, the eternal, unchanging, they would be ever mindful of the nature and character that their one true God displayed in his mighty works. In other words, they, the sons of Israel, were to forever remember his reputation and his name. In other words, they were to remember his shame. S-H-E-M. I don't think that we were supposed to have forgotten how to spell it. Nevertheless, history has given us that lesson, and according to Jewish experts, we've lost the name. I don't know if that's completely true or not. Some say yes, some say no. We're divided on the issue, but one thing is clear. We are not to forget God's reputation. Now, let me drive the point home in a messianic application. How do we, the messianic community, possibly internalize the above-mentioned revelation when we are constantly concerned with mispronouncing the original spelling of a Hebrew text that originally used no vowel markings in the first place? I feel that the ancients have missed the point of this wonderful revelation of the character of God's uh, 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 shame, his reputation, as is embodied in his name. I really feel that they've done um, the English-speaking world and the Hebrew-speaking world a disservice in, in making up this nonsense about that it is to be hidden as opposed to revealed. I also feel that moderns who today place too much emphasis on correct pronunciation of this name of Hashem are also missing the point. 
Now, you might argue that many are simply seeking to recapture what I'm purporting should have been preserved all along. That's true. In, in a way, that may be true, but allowing our energies to be consumed in this area, we might just miss an even clearer revelation from our God. In other words, you could say that since we messed it up the first time around, Hashem has decidedly, or decided to graciously give us another chance. But this time, in my Midrash here, it involves His Son. Now, to bolster my argument, allow me to use a very significant New Covenant passage. A quote from the New Testament, a.k.a. the Apostolic Scriptures. Alright, you ready? Here we go. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul, or Rav Shaul, teaches us that when, quote, Yeshua, the eternal Lord of Hashem, became a man, the reference is to John 1, verses 1 and 14, end quote, that Hashem granted, indeed he gave him, a name that is above every name. Now that's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that he, Yeshua, has been given a name which is above every name. Now, how can this be unless we naturally assume this to mean that the name Yeshua is somehow above the name yod Vavhei? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We know that Yeshua is the Son is subject to the Father, Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh. And yet the text says that Yeshua has been given a name which is above every other name, which means taken at face value in the Bashat, Yeshua must somehow be above Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh. This is Meshuga. It's crazy. Of course that cannot be what the verse is meaning, for that would pit the Son against the Father in a contest of names where the Son emerges above the Father. Ridiculous. We also know from the rest of the teaching of the Torah that Yeshua the man is subjective to the Father, just like I said. Yet, the Rav, Shaul, is teaching us something about the equality and divinity of the name of Yeshua that stretches the limits of normal modes of speech, whether Hebrew, Greek, or today's English. You've got to agree that something strange is going on in the text. Let's see if we can find out what it is. According to Yeshua's own testimony in John 10.30, he and the Father constitute an echad. That's the Hebrew word for one. I and my Father are one. That's what Yeshua says. Now this Hebrew word echad can be understood as describing a composite unity. This means that one revelation of the unity doesn't detract from the other part or parts of the same unity. They work together. They are composited. In plain English... Yeshua is one with the Father in such a way as to share the exact same purpose, will, and glory with the Father, but Yeshua never subtracts any of those attributes from the Father. Do you know what I mean? To be sure, Yeshua did just the opposite while he was here on earth. By his life of servitude, he brought clarity of meaning to the purposes of the Father. He correctly defined the divine will of the Father by becoming obedient even unto death, and he demonstrated the majestic glory of the Father by being raised from the grave. No, Yeshua never usurped any authority from the Father. And this is proved not only from his very words as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, but also in the very same chapter mentioned above, which is, of course, the Philippians passage. So, we find that the Torah sometimes uses language that seems to stretch the limits of our finite understanding of the nature and the name of Hashem in relation to the nature and name of the Messiah, 
our minds are just boggled. Yet, the Torah remains foundationally true. Now, I really believe that Hashem wants us to come to the awesome realization, through the Ruach HaKodesh, of course, that the name of the Lord is Yeshua. The name of the L-O-R-D is Yeshua. I'm playing with the words there. If you don't believe me, read the rest of Philippians, where the, the, the Torah teaches that one day everyone will acknowledge that Yeshua is Adonai to the glory of God the Father. Now, this word Adonai in the Greek is the word kurios, which can be translated sir or lord, depending on the context. Since Shaul is quoting from the Tanakh book of Isaiah, then the context demands the rendering Lord, L-O-R-D. In essence, Paul is quoting from the Tanakh, where in the Tanakh, the Hebrew renders Lord as Y-H-V-H. In fact, to further the seeming controversy, Isaiah 53.23, which is where the quote comes from, is specifically referring to Adonai, the Father. This means that the verse in Philippians is hinting that Yeshua will be acknowledged as Adonai without explicitly stating that Yeshua is the Father. That would be something that would be too hard to stomach if it just said Jesus is the Father. Besides, it wouldn't be etymologically correct. It's not correct according to... um, uh, what is it where we study the nature of God? Ontology. It's ontologically incorrect to say that Yeshua is the Father. We must be careful not to put something into the text that is not there. We as believers in Messiah know in our spiritual intellect, that is to say, as the Spirit has touched our inner man, we know that Yeshua is the Father veiled in flesh, yet, you have to admit, the Torah never comes right out and tells us that, quote, Yeshua is the Father, or that Yeshua is God. Rather, what the Torah does is, it uses unique language, such as that which is found in our current parasha, to reveal to us the intimate character and identity of our otherwise unfathomable God. Moshe becomes privy to the privy to the revelation that would someday be fully realized in Yeshua. What is that revelation? Here it is, that Hashem's name is to be forever remembered as yud heh the God who is and will be the Deliverer of Israel, and that His Son is also the Great I Am, because the Son is the Deliverer. The Son is the right arm of the Father. The Son is the, the salvation of Israel. To be sure, our Messiah possesses these unique qualities otherwise found solely in Hashem. And that's how we understand the difficult uh, relationship between the Father and the Son as an Echad. This is a wonderful revelation indeed, wouldn't you agree? Again, as I mentioned, for a more complete look at the names of Hashem, ask for my What's in a Name commentary. And for a more complete look at the Ahad of Hashem, the unity within uh, diversity within unity, ask for my Shema commentaries, parts 1, 2, and 3. All of them are available at this website, okay? So let's do some conclusions by doing a practical application, all right? 
This next section is entitled Practical Application. Our parasha goes on to teach us about the method that Hashem would use to demonstrate His mighty power, not only to the Jewish people, but to the Egyptians as well. Hashem instructs Moshe to perform various signs and wonders in the sight of the king of Egypt, but that even these would not convince the Pharaoh to free the people. Boy, what a stubborn man he is. Only in the end, with a mighty outstretched arm, would Hashem cause the Pharaoh to let the people go. We reading today and listening to my podcast, we need to understand that the king of Egypt willfully hardened his own heart until Hashem himself saw fit to use this for his glory by confirming or hardening the Pharaoh's heart also. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Hashem only confirmed the hardness of a heart that was originally and willfully hardened by Pharaoh himself. Today, by way of practical application, the lesson for us should be one of willful obedience to God rather than disobedience and eventual hardening. To be sure, the more Pharaoh hardened his heart towards Hashem, the more difficult it became to change that heart. Similarly today, the more you and I say no to Hashem and His Son, the more difficult it becomes to ever say yes to Him. Pharaoh's hardness is vividly, uh, vividly displayed in the phrase found in Shemot, uh, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, where he declares, quote, Who is Adonai? I don't know Adonai, end quote. I mean, you can, you can see by reading the English rendering there that this is surely a willful denial of the God of the descendants of Abraham. I don't know the Lord. This is the attitude that eventually brought the king to destruction and his country along with him. But Hashem does not allow the stubbornness of one ignorant king to thwart his masterful plans. Instead, as we read the story of the Exodus from Egypt, it is precisely in this disobedient vessel that Hashem displays his awesome power in deliverance. And this deliverance will be spoken of for generations to come. In fact, you can read Romans chapter 9, and you'll see that Paul makes a point about uh, God uh, uh, making a demonstration of whomever he will, um, rejecting those whom he'll reject, having mercy on those whom he'll have mercy, and he references the king of Egypt here. So, listen to me today. If you have experienced the deliverance from the bondage of sin, then you have something exciting to talk about. To be sure, the Torah instructs us to proclaim the good news of this salvation from spiritual Egypt. If we are to be living testimonies of the power and the majesty of Hashem in the earth today, then we need to know from whence we came and why. As we study the story of the Exodus from Egypt, the story uh, that we're reading about in the Torah, it is going to provide us with the necessary inspiration and foundation to share that redemption with others. So, I want to challenge you to grab a seat, sit back, and get ready to go through the Red Sea. The Torah is about to take you on one of the greatest adventures in the history of the sons of Abraham. And because of your Messiah, Yeshua, as non-Jewish believers, you need to know that their history is your history. This next section is the excursus, and um, the excursus is entitled G-D. 
question mark. In other words, um, I'm sure you've sometimes written or sometimes seen the name of God spelled or the, the, the name Lord spelled with dashes instead of whole letters, and you're probably wondering, what gives? So I decided to explain that in this excursus to, me, uh, to my commentary on Shemot. Here we go. Why do some people write the name of God without the O, as in G-D, or why do some spell the title Lord, L-O-R-D, with a dash, as in L-R-D? You ever wondered? Well, let me explain. Um, there's a little note here. Let me just let you know up front that may it be noted that my personal preference is to use all of the letters when writing Lord, God, and such. That's my personal preference. In fact, you've noticed that in my commentaries. I don't use the uh, little dashes. But due to sensitivities, I've often used Hashem as a reference for the Tetragrammaton name of God in my commentaries. However, for this little section here, I'm going to break with personal tradition and omit the required vowels in this excursus. Okay? I'm going to use G-D and L-R-D just so you guys can figure out what, uh, why it's rendered that way. All right. Based on the words in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 3-4, through 4, the rabbis deduce that it is forbidden to erase the name of God from a written document, since any paper upon which the name of God was written might be discarded and thus erased. That is to say, God's name might be erased. Because of that, the rabbis forbade explicitly writing the name of God, except in holy books, such as the Torah, uh, of course, with provisions for the proper disposal of such books. Now, according to Jewish folklore, God has 70 names. However, only one of these names is the ineffable name, which cannot be erased or pronounced. Further, of the 70 names, seven may not be erased, but they can be pronounced on certain occasions, such as when reading the Torah. The other names may be erased and pronounced, but still must be treated with respect. The Talmud, out of tractate uh, Shavuot 35, folios A and B, make it clear that this prohibition applies only to seven biblical names of God and not to other names or attributes of God which may be freely written. The prohibition was later codified by, Maimon by uh, Maimonides in his Mishnah Torah on uh, Yesodei HaTorah, uh, chapter 6, uh, 1 and 2. The practice of writing God... G-D is supported by the Shota uh 332, chapter 3, verse 32, and uh, where it is endorsed and accepted as the prevailing custom. Now, Rambam, uh, all of these names, by the way, are, are just sages of antiquity. Rambam cites Deuteronomy 12, uh, 3 and 4, which states, quote, And you shall destroy the names of pagan gods from their places. You shall not do similarly to God your Lord, end quote. The intent of this is to create an atmosphere of respect for God's name versus pagan God's names. As a result of this, people acquired the habit of not writing the full name down in the first place. Strictly speaking, this only applies to Hebrew on a permanent medium, but many peoples are careful beyond the minimum and have applied it to non-Hebrew languages. Hence, that's where we get G-D. Okay? One explanation is that using G-D is a reminder that any thing that we may say about God is necessarily metaphorical. Spelling out the name, or even in a language other than Hebrew, would imply that one could speak meaningfully, not just metaphorically, about God. However, the shach, again, uh, the, in Yoreh De'eh, uh, 179.11, he ruled that God, quote, God spelled in a foreign language does not have the status of a shem, or a name, and thus may be erased 
the Hebrew word is lahadchila. Uh, and um, the quote there goes on to talk about a story. Let me just relay the story to you. There's a story about um, Rav uh, Solovetich. Um, it's a Russian name, so I apologize for not knowing the exact pronunciation of his name there. Uh, and he's he's deceased, so may his name live on. But he intentionally, um, in this story, uh, he intentionally wrote God on the board while teaching a class. And then, just as deliberately and intentionally, he erased it. So as to demonstrate to his students by his own example that this was not halachically a problem. Interesting, isn't it? He wrote G-O-D on the board. He didn't write yod vav Conservative and reform practice, if you'll notice, is to use G-O-D, God. Conservative and reform. However, even some who are not strict or even observant in general will write G-D. I've seen conservative Jewish people uh, write G-D, but generally speaking, they're not as as um, uh, careful about G-O-D or G.D. But sometimes you'll see that G-D, and that's to emphasize that Jewish concepts of God are are consistent. Uh, concepts concepts that God is un, um, unknowable, and therefore G-D represents that kind of that unknowable aspect of God. Note, now there is one exception as I draw this little excursus to a close. There is one exception to the destruction of God's name. Um, in Numbers 5, 11 through 31, uh, during the uh, suspected wife ceremony, the sota, that's what... Um, the, word, the Hebrew word sota means uh, the, the wife of suspect. In this ceremony, a man who suspects his wife of adultery with witnessing, seeing a forbidden seclusion, uh, witnesses that I should say, see the forbidden seclusion. Um, he suspects his wife of adultery, and in doing so, he, he brings his wife to the temple. And there, the priest is to test the woman by pronouncing the horrible biblical curse that we read in that passage. After reading the curse, it is written on parchment. The curse itself is written on parchment and dissolved in water, which the woman drinks. And, it, and if you read the story, if she's guilty, she dies. And otherwise, the um, couple... Well, if she's guilty, she dies. Her belly extends or distends, um, and basically she dies. Otherwise, the couple gets their marriage back. I mean, it's one way or the other, uh, considering the um, strange nature of the, uh, um, uh, the uh, ceremony there, the ritual. Thus, if you think about it, because the priest has to write the curse on the parchment and then dissolve it in water, well, if you go back and read the curse, the curse has God's name in there. Thus, God actually allows the ineffable name to be dissolved in water that the woman drinks. Isn't that interesting? This seems to be the only exception to the destruction of God's name. And of course, as the Talmud goes on to note, they don't miss anything, do they? Quote, God allows the ineffable name to be erased for the sake of bringing peace between a husband and a wife. So, that's the end of my little excursus on um, the ineffable name of God and why it's spelled sometimes uh, G-D-L-R-D. And that concludes my Torah portion for today, my commentary. So, the closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melecha olam. Asher natan lanu Torah temet vechayhe olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, 
Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.